Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran New York City jazz keyboardist, composer, producer, and educator, Bennett Pastor. We caught up with him about his newest 2023 CD called Radiance as he stands as one of New York City's most creative and versatile musicians. In a music career spanning more than three decades, he has toured internationally and is a long-standing faculty member at the Stanford Jazz Workshop at Stanford University. He's got a great story. Enjoy. Bennett, it's great to meet you, man. What's up? Hey, it's nice to meet you, too. Thanks for inviting me to join you today. Yeah, you bet. I, I really enjoyed the album. The other day, you know, I get all these CDs in the mail, and we were listening to the Parlamore Trio with Dan Levinson, and I had it on for, like, I don't know, probably, like, two or three days, and my son, his name is Miles, for obvious reasons. Oh, cool. He's a big jazz fan. He was like, is this the same album? And I was like, no, I had to switch it up, and I put yours in. And he just fell into it. We loved it. You know, we just drive around and listen to jazz. That's our whole Opera Mundi. <laughs> How old is he? He's going to be 19 tomorrow. Oh, so cool. And does he play? No, he doesn't. He's on the spectrum. So he's a big fan. Mm -hmm. um, he's just always, you know, he's been bathed in jazz since the word go. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's a passion. He loves it. I love that. Music is just so soothing for everyone. And that's, you know, so something I was really going for with this record was just trying to make it really listenable enjoyable record no matter how much jazz background you have and that's that's exactly what you've done and uh, before we get into the album i want to know as an artist and a musician how did you survive the last three and a half years of the pandemic and how has it changed you oh man i mean the hardest thing about it i realized as we came out of it i mean there were so many hard things for everybody right universally it was just the challenge of not being social was hard but music for me is such a social activity yeah. Like I have, I'm in my recording studio at home now where we made the record and it's not like I didn't have space to live or to create or to play or to practice, but the second other people were able to come over even into my backyard, much less inside and start playing music together again, I realized that, that music was, a, it's a social activity for me as much as anything, right? We practice, we work, we compose alone often, but something magic happens when you play music with people yeah groove yeah. doesn't you know groove happens with people and push and pull happens and that communication that conversation those direction changes you know and i just i survived i guess by just being patient to answer your question but the thing you know and just trying to when i had creative energy find a place to put it yeah. but i i'm lonely when i create by myself is the truth of the matter and yeah. when I create with other people, it feels more magical. Yeah. So you obviously said you wanted to make a feel-good record with Radiance. But what <clears> were the artistic forces that really went into it? Was it kind of an outgrowth of the pandemic and living through that isolation? What really went into this? During the pandemic, I kept looking through my record collection and trying to find these records that would soothe and still be artistic, you know, crafty. So things like Bill Evans' Sunday at the Vanguard. Um, or Joni Mitchell, Jira. There's a certain not Wayne Shorter, Native Dancer. Yeah, These albums that I, some of which I've loved since high school and some of which are more recent things I've fallen in love with. The Majumal at the Alhambra or the Blackhawk. These things like, they could give you as much as you need if you're looking to really dig into them, but you can also just sit back and feel them without analyzing them. Yeah. Um, so I started writing some tunes during the pandemic to try to create that kind of album, something that was, well, the word, the word I was working with was understated, 
I had a working title for the album and for the set of tunes called Understated. And the goal was like, could each tune have its own little set of rules? And then the album would be like a box of chocolates where each one just has a flavor and we stick to it without overdeveloping or overplaying. And many of the tunes were written to try to be as essential and as spare as they could be to leave room for creativity to happen. But the goal was to sort of, as one of my old records was called, undo the music, to not do it, just to let it blossom. And so fast, fast forward, right, to summer of 2022, when people are getting back together and the guys and I are starting to rehearse the songs. And it, I mean, I can't tell you how good it felt to play music with people and how fresh, you know, to be back in the studio on my Steinway, not on my synthesizer in the backyard, you know, and playing the new songs with my favorite collaborators, we couldn't, we tried to be understated, but the music didn't want to always be understated. And I, I listened back and I was like, well, were we understated enough? Did we follow our, our, our goals? And rather than change the rules, I just decided, let the music blossom to be what it wants to be. Yeah. I hope we didn't overplay, but what we changed the name from understated to radiance because that's what the music wanted to be. Yeah. Well, and, and that's how I approach jazz. Jazz has always been a feeling to me. I don't ever try yeah. to analyze and pick it apart. I don't know that I'm a really good reviewer of, of, of albums more than I just go with a cerebral approach, a very visceral way of looking at it. And that's a great way that you described it. Cause that's the way I want to feel like all of those albums you mentioned, those are like on the top of my list to put on. If I'm just like, I just want to feel it. I want to get into it. And I mean, you know, and then there's others where it's more avant and more art house and, you know, there, there's a different feel. You feel the envelope getting pushed. But at the end of the day, I like that warm analog fluid to go through my bones. And that's yeah. what makes sense. Are you a musician or just a I, 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 radio guy? Of all of the things that I've <laughs> done, I've, I've been, you know, I, I do visual arts and write and do all kinds of things. I want music to be a mystery. I want to observe it from afar. And I can play the drums a little bit, but I just, I've tried to dabble in doing instruments, but I'm like, I want that to remain a mystery in my life. I want to just observe and, and appreciate it. Love that. I, I've been reading Rick Rubin's new book, The Art of the Act of Creativity, I think it's called. Yeah. And he talks how, about how everybody is a creator. Everybody is an artist, how we live our life, whether we realize it or not. Yeah. So whatever medium you choose to express yourself in, whether it's just, as he says, finding a new way home through traffic yeah. or whether it's music or visual arts, right? We all, we're all making choices and improvising all the time in our lives. Absolutely. And it's great to want to keep some mystery in there. Yeah. And similarly, like I'm looking for that moment in the music when the magic just happens, yeah. when we're flying and not thinking. Mm -hmm. And if the music is really hard, you can get there, right? If you practice enough, if you rehearse enough, if you tour enough. But there's something about playing easy music, for yeah. lack of a, a better word, that allows people to find the zone. Yeah. And that, to me, is where the magic is. And especially on a recording, right? Like, it's great to be in a room of people that are playing free on the highest level, right? But you maybe don't want to hear that over and over as a record. You want to experience it with them. Sorry. Whereas a record, you know, is something that it could be around a lot longer than me. And yeah. you want people to keep coming back to it and, and find solace or love or soul in that, you know? And so if, if I'm lucky, that's what happened. And if not, well, 
you can make the next record. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. So how did this journey begin for you? How did you get into the music and more specifically jazz? I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which did not feel like a hotbed of jazz in the 70s and early 80s. Um, but my parents loved classical music and had Beatles records and Manilow and Streisand and uh, James Taylor and a lot of that kind of soft rock. And the radio was always on. So I heard all kinds of other stuff growing up. But it wasn't until I got to, uh, to middle school and had a band director who said, oh, you can play some piano. You know, have you ever played jazz? And I said, oh, I, I hate jazz. I, yeah. Really, I knew nothing about jazz. We didn't have any jazz records in my house. And he said, oh, are you, are you sure? You know, if you want to play in the band program here, you're going to have to learn some jazz. And you're also going to have to learn a wind instrument. So he got me a clarinet and said, you know, take some lessons over the summer before seventh grade. And we'll see you in the fall. And this man who is named Ken Adkins, I'm still in touch with him. He's back in Albuquerque after some years in Seattle. He, he just nurtured a bunch of us by following our lead and giving us records, teaching us songs, playing with us during his free periods. And he just slowly showed me the music and, and let me develop my own kind of love of jazz on my own terms, you know, with his, with his experience. So by the, you know, ninth or 10th grade, I was able to really play some some jazz and my best friend played bass and we had a drummer friend and a guitarist friend and a saxophonist friend. So all through school, we had a band and we had this guy who would say, oh, you know, why don't you guys learn this song or you know, here, take this Keith Jarrett record, or this Miles Davis record home for the weekend and, and see what you think of it. And it just came together for me, yeah. you know, just fell in love with it. So what was the first live jazz show you ever saw that blew you away? Oh. I don't know about the first. We we did have access to some good music in Albuquerque. I remember seeing Joe Henderson's quartet yeah. once um, with Herbie Lewis and George Cables. And it might have even been Philly Joe Jones. It was early enough in the 80s. Um, that was a great one. Also, Andrew Hill played solo piano in Albuquerque at one wow. point, And that was amazing. We went and saw Pat Metheny a lot in the 80s. He, you know, he and the guys were really on the road in that van doing the work. And yeah. I've always loved Pat Metheny, um, an older friend of mine in high school, tipped me to Bright Size Life and the first Pat Metheny group record. So we saw them a lot. Um, but I also went to a lot of reggae shows and some blues shows and some rock shows. And, you know, luckily Albuquerque was and still is a pretty good music town. So right before the pandemic started in January 2020, I moved to the hometown of Pat Metheny in Lee Summit, Missouri. Yeah, so, Lee Summit. I had to look up where that is. You're in the suburbs of Kansas City? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, That's a great so, music town, right? A, a yeah. music town with, with a lot of tradition and with a really unique eighth note, as I like to say. Well, you know, Bobby Watson headed up the program at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and pulled a lot of people in. And Kansas City used to be a springboard to go to New York and other big cities, and now people are coming here. So the tide has kind of turned, and it's turned. Mm. And it doesn't hurt that you got a good sport culture, and you have all kinds of things. We're getting the World Cup, and there's all these oh. things that kind of add to it. So it's it's become kind of a destination, and there's just music all the time. So it's a good thing. I was trying to figure out, and I, I should know my jazz history better, but I imagine your, your listeners will also appreciate this. Why was Kansas City such an important place for the big bands in the in the 30s? Is it on Route 66? It's not. No. Right? You go through Tulsa, and you're, you're south of Kansas City. It's yeah. St. Louis. Yeah, I will tell Is you one train? Well, it's it's that we were we we had that, but we also had Tom Pendergast 
who built this town and he was kind of a mobster in hmm. the the prohibition time we had liquor flowing so everybody came here we were the paris of the plains so when ah. people couldn't indulge in fact when we closed down during the pandemic we were the city that was open the longest with live music because we didn't stop during that time period of the prohibition it's interesting how these traditions yeah, these cultural elements carry forward. And I, I just love that about America. You know how Memphis has such a rich musical tradition. New Orleans has a universe of musical traditions. Yeah. But all these cities, Pittsburgh, yeah. Kansas City. Right. And I hope that we are, as Americans, able to retain our local traditions and styles and eighth notes, our feels right that come. You know, if you grew up studying with a certain person in Kansas City, you probably had that that yeah. sound where somebody could be like oh i hear where you're from yeah well and we were always drenched in the blues parker had that and all of those jay mcshan all those cats but i think the thing that's always so reassuring to me about the jazz community interviewing musicians and being in this community is that there's always this very very strong notion of passing the baton on the torch is going to stay lit and we're going to teach and that's big that's why universities and all these educational programs right. are out there someone like pat metheny i've heard over and over because when i bring up pat metheny and lee summit i always hear how gregarious and how open he was and he is to teaching and leading people into that light and that's huge and that's something that's very emblematic of the jazz community and I, I cite him often in conversations with students and, and colleagues about, you can really see his trajectory where he, you know, he started off with a strong desire to do his own thing, right? His first record is all his own compositions, something I can relate to, right? I've been writing as long as I can remember. Love, yeah, I'd rather record my own music than someone else's. But then he realized that all his influences were accessible to him. And he thought to himself, well, I wonder if I could play with Ornette Coleman. And if I could play with Dewey Redmond and Charlie Hayden and Jack DeJanet, and he, through probably just his willpower and his talent, made himself into one of those guys. He became yeah. a jazz heavy by doing the work, by do both developing on one branch his own music and on another branch, really immersing himself in the music of the people who came before him. And furthermore, reaching out to them and saying, hey, Ornette, I want to make a record with you. Ornette was probably like, Pat who? <laughs> right. And then he listens to him and he's like, oh, let's do this. You know, yeah. he's open. And the, as an older musician, you realize now that these younger musicians are have a lot to give to us. It's a two-way street. I've been teaching yeah. at a jazz camp at Stanford University uh, since I started as a student there in the 80s. at the yeah. Not the university, but the camp. And yeah. I've been going back every summer for 35 years. And I've seen my students, many of them, go on to have far better careers than me. Yeah. And... Now, whenever I get a chance to get a 20-something or a 30-something musician over to my studio to play or on the bandstand, I do it. And I realize that, like, this is how the circle works. There I have to give back with my experience, but, but be, yeah. be open. Yeah, Sorry. for sure. There was a book that was released last year about the Kansas City years of Pat Metheny in the beginning. And he was really interwoven into all of the older cats, really oh, doing wow. a lot of stuff, really got the attention of some people that, that helped him kind of maturate so to speak and get to a better place but he was he was gonzo he was always out there doing stuff lots of people that are still in kansas city remember those early days and have a lot of reverence for it so it's 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 pretty wondrous so you know speaking of a long trail and a road and jazz you've been around for a while what is your favorite part about being a professional musician what do you look forward to the most i just love that every day can be different that i 
I'm called upon every day to use my creativity and my skills, my background, my experience, my passion to try to help make the world a more beautiful place in a different way every day. You know, I run a studio from, from my house and I produce a lot of younger artists. Um, I play a lot of different styles of music and I'm sort of, you know, forced to do all the different things that I choose to do to, to be a creative professional. I've decided that I want to play music and create music for a living. And it's not so easy as just doing one thing for me. You know, I'm not Taylor Swift just with this huge business on the road, putting on my show night after night. I, I just played three shows in New Mexico and it was great to get to do the same thing three days in a row, but most days are different. And I love that, that it's, you know, every day I have to get up and just figure it out. Yeah. So at the end of the day, why do you love jazz? Because it just feels so great. Swing feels so great to play. You can't, you know, if you don't understand that feeling or you don't feel, if it doesn't feel great to you, it's probably not your thing as a listener, right? But like, to me, this uniquely American time field, when you're playing it, when you're listening to it, it's just, it's so full of energy and so joyous and so it's inspiring. It's inciting. It makes me want to be a part of it. I mean, jazz is just, for me, it's a huge tent. And I don't like that conversation. What, is it jazz or isn't it jazz or what is jazz? Yeah. I, I'm a big, I'm a big tent guy of like, bring in whatever influences you want. And once you synthesize it and start improvising, you'll, I think it was Duke Ellington said, right? You'll know, you'll know it when you hear it. Yeah. Absolutely. But I, I, I just, I love it for how it feels and for how it allows people to be themselves in a social context. So everyone out there has a perception of you, family, friends, fans, students, but you ultimately run the show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? It's funny. This Rick Rubin book says, in the end, you have to just let your art go. And it doesn't matter who you think you are or what you put into it. Everyone's going to just see you the way they see you and think of your art the way they think of it. So the question of what do I think of me is such an interesting one. I, I have a joke that's like a uh, middle-class Jewish kid from Albuquerque releases another good jazz album. That's my every press release is that. So I guess that's what I think of myself. Like I'm a guy from a, an intellectual Jewish family who was raised to believe I could do whatever I want with my life and given that real privilege to try to get to try to go out and do it and have the support to get the education and to make the mistakes and to, you know, not go out and make an unbelievably large amount of money. And somehow I'm able to be here in New York, sustaining myself for 20, almost 25 years, just as a creative professional. So that's how I see myself as somebody who, you know, a team player who, when, when you're with me, hopefully the music is better. Hopefully the conversation is better. Uh, you know, I just try to, uh, you know, bring the good feeling to to whatever I do. You know, it's interesting. It, it kind of like separating the yoke from from the, uh, uh, you know, just just separating the art from the person. I just read the biography on um, Van Halen from the manager's perspective. Oh wow! I heard and that's it, a good book. Oh I read yeah. The interview in tape op with the engineer who yeah, was involved yeah, with that. Yeah. The, uh, no, the, the, you're talking about the Ted Templeman book. Well, no, this this is uh, Noel Monk. He was the manager oh. for them from the very beginning, oh. and he had a very keen insight, and and he really followed and coddled them all the way to the end. And I think about it, and like I've always been a fan of their music, but I really now after reading this have to separate it because the things that I've heard about them and how they did him and other things, I have to really try to separate that egg because I have to keep that music intact, 
but I also know that they were, you know, they were rock and roll people in a day where there wasn't cancel culture or accountability and they did all kinds of things. So it's interesting how a lot of those biographies are coming out about these bands in that era of the seventies and eighties, that there was no accountability and they just, there were so many things that were under the rug, the rugs like to the sky. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's a really interesting and really difficult conversation about a lot of people. Yeah. From Michael Jackson to Louis CK to, you know, going back to artists hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And, you know, for my wife, it comes down to like, are they still alive or did we live in the time that they lived? And if, if they did reprehensible things during my lifetime, she says it's very hard for her to forgive them for that. Right. You know, I, I can forgive Michael Jackson. And I think that it's his incredibly difficult childhood yeah. made him who he is and made yeah. his music what it is. And I don't admire that about him. But the music is so unstoppable. Yeah. And the talent is so unstoppable that I I guess I just overlook it. But boy, it's hard sometimes, oh, right? It really is. And I didn't know that about Van Halen, but I'm not surprised. Uh, and, you know, I, I have a sixth grade memory of getting in a car with a 12th grader who was driving us to school. And he had Unchained, yeah. second first tune from uh, Fair Warning on, or maybe Mean Streets, his first tune. Anyway, whatever it is. And it was just, I think I cried. It was so yeah. loud. I was not ready for hard rock. And, you know, I've come to love that album now. Yeah. It sort of symbolizes the kind of journey we make. But maybe I'm better off not knowing what went into the sausage. Yeah, that's the thing, too. That's that's where I have to be very careful about it. I mean, it's not that egregious, but it's it's enough right. where you're like, man, alive. We put these people that turn into rock stars on pedestals. And at the end of the day, they're just a bunch of kids that are unchained with a lot of money and a lot of drugs and a lot yeah. of access to girls. And it just turns into chaos. You know, so maybe it's better just to learn about how they made the art than yeah. what kind of people they were. You know, reading this interview with their longtime studio engineer who just talked about them like kids about yeah. a, on a first name basis and what they were like on that first record. And it was fascinating, but that yeah. was not it was personal, but it wasn't it wasn't not about the music. Yeah. Ted would have an interesting perspective because, yeah, when they were in their beginnings, they were just a bunch of kids and all of them are. They're just all wet behind the ears. They don't know what they're doing. And then, of course, the recording business is really hardcore and it really sharpens the yeah. knife quick. And imagine growing up with that level of success. Yeah. Changes like Michael Jackson, right? Never really had a childhood like, no. like no. we would think of it. So it's just, you know. Yeah. He got crystallized in that notion. So radiance is a wonderful new album where's the best place to pick it up learn about any live shows anything that you're doing where can anybody go thank you for asking um bennettpastor.com that's b-e-n-n-e-t-t-p-a-s-t-e-r.com is a good place to keep track of upcoming shows and uh, uh news and uh a lot of stories behind the music there i've been slowly putting up um, and right now the album streams worldwide in all the usual places, uh, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, Tidal, Napster, Deezer, all those, you know, everywhere you get me is YouTube. Um, and if you're looking to purchase a CD, if you're that person or a vinyl LP, this is my first album on vinyl LP, you can get that at my Bandcamp page, which if you go to my website or just look up Bandcamp Bennett Pastor, you'll find it right there. Um, it's so cool to have my music on vinyl. Finally. Yeah, excited yeah. about that. Really that sounds is nice. cool. Yeah, for sure. Better and the album is shorter. The album's shorter on vinyl, and I kind of wish I had made the whole thing that length. I think it's better yeah. a little yeah. shorter. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Bennett, this has been great. Thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you for opening up. I appreciate it. Best of luck with everything. Thanks for your support, Joe. It's great to meet you, and I hope that if I'm in Kansas City at some point, we'll get a chance to hang out. 
That'd be great, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Bennett for his time, energy, and cool. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.